0: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast, my name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 162nd edition of the program. Today is October 4th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and this week that includes Anthony Allen, David McBale, John Douglas, and Midori D. Garrison. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the program, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport and become a member and get access to content before it goes up on YouTube. So on today's episode, California Governor Jerry Brown signed their state's net neutrality bill into law and Donald Trump's Justice Department immediately announced a lawsuit to overturn it. Meanwhile, the FCC just approved Ajit Pai's new plan that gives $2 billion to wireless carriers. The case against Kavanaugh is getting stronger, and in addition to that story, we'll look back at the Anita Hill hearings as well. Dave Rubin learns that the right isn't actually as tolerant as he's been saying. House Republicans pass $3 trillion more in tax cuts for corporations and the rich. Bernie Sanders took on Amazon and guess what? He actually won. We'll talk about that. Also Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar discussed the strategy that Democrats need to adopt in order to appeal to all voters. Kanye West concocted an insane conspiracy theory about Democrats. And finally on the program, Ron Placone joins the show to tell us what you can do to fight for municipal broadband in your area. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the show. So this week, we got major news regarding the fight to save net neutrality. So as you might have heard, California Governor Jerry Brown has officially signed their state's net neutrality bill into law, making them the third state to codify net neutrality protections and more importantly, setting a brand new standard for a free and open internet as their state officially now has the toughest net neutrality protections in the country. However, with good news, we got some bad news almost immediately after because the Justice Department announced that they would be suing the state of California, challenging this, because they claim that this law is illegal. And it's clear that they were anticipating that Jerry Brown would in fact sign this bill into law because they literally announced this lawsuit hours after it was signed. So, for more on this, we go to the New York Times, and Cecilia Kang explains, The Justice Department on Sunday sued California to stop the state's new law that would guarantee full and equal access to the internet, a principle known as net neutrality, in the latest legal fight between the state and the Trump administration. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said that California's net neutrality law was illegal because Congress granted the federal government through the FCC the sole authority to create rules for broadband internet providers. States do not regulate interstate commerce. The federal government does, Mr. Sessions said in a statement. Once again, the California legislature has enacted an extreme and illegal state law attempting to frustrate federal policy. Xavier Becerra, California's Attorney General, said the state would defend its new law. California will not allow a handful of power brokers to dictate sources for information or the speed of which websites load, Mr. Becerra said. We remain deeply committed to protecting freedom of expression, innovation, and fairness. State Senator Scott Wiener, an author of the state bill, defended the law after the Justice Department lawsuit was announced. In their world, no one is Allowed to protect an open internet, he said. We've been down this road before. When Trump and Sessions sued California and claimed we lacked the power to protect immigrants, California fought Trump and Sessions on their immigration lawsuit. California won, and California will fight this lawsuit as well. Now, the question is if there's two other states that also codified net neutrality laws, Oregon and Washington, why is Donald Trump's Justice Department just choosing? to single out California. Well, there's a very good reason for that. It's because this law actually prohibits zero rating, which is something that internet service providers want to be able to do because this allows them to potentially dominate the market. And it's one of the most anti-competitive practices that they can do. And for those of you who don't know what zero rating means, well, let's say t-mobile gives you five gigs of data each month now that's fine if you're just going to be browsing the web and checking your email and looking at facebook and whatnot but the thing about five gigs is that it seems like a lot however if you want to use apps like netflix and other video streaming services you might not necessarily be inclined to do that because obviously that's going to eat up most of your data but t-mobile then says in response well how about this if you use our video streaming service That actually won't count towards your data. In fact, you can binge as much as you want on our video streaming app, but the minute you decide to open up Netflix, well, then we're going to have to penalize you and that will in fact eat up your data. Now, the reason why internet service providers and wireless carriers more specifically love this is because this potentially allows them to dominate the market because if all of their customers are disincentivized when it comes to using Netflix and they're instead incentivized to use Netflix. Their product, well, that allows companies like Verizon and T-Mobile to potentially end up killing off Netflix one day if everyone opts to use t-mobile streaming service for example and this is wrong because they're not becoming popular simply because they're offering consumers a product that's superior but instead they're becoming more popular because they're basically strong arming people into using their product by punishing customers and competitors now verizon in response will argue well why would you be against this because we're just giving customers an additional option because they can use up our app and in turn have more data the question that i always say is well if you truly care about customers then why don't you just stop imposing these arbitrary data caps to begin with you see they impose these data caps because they want to make more money from customers and then after they've already extracted more money from customers with these data caps Then they try to kill off the competition by saying, well, if you use our video streaming service instead of Netflix, well, that won't go towards your data. I mean, that's wrong. It's anti-competitive. It's one of the most anti-competitive things that they can do. And that's why they're fighting so hard to stop any regulation with regard to zero rating because this will one day allow them to dominate the market potentially if states don't start taking action when it comes to zero rating. So that's why they're suing and singling out California specifically. And that's why when you look at California, well, lobbyists who work for Verizon and Comcast and AT&T fought so hard to stop this legislation because they don't want regulations on zero rating to become the new normal. And Passing this legislation could lead to a domino effect, where other states see that this is working really well for consumers in California, and they might want to replicate this law. So, getting to Jeff Sessions' comments, I want to reiterate something he said here because it really speaks to the absurdity of the situation and how Republicans in general have been trying to gaslight consumers when it comes to this issue. So Jeff Sessions said, the California legislature has enacted an extreme and illegal state law. So in his view, protecting consumers and saving net neutrality is extreme. But in actuality, what's true? Well, it's people like Jeff Sessions and Ajit Pai who are actually the extremists because they're going against the overwhelming majority of the American people who support net neutrality. And that includes 73% of Republicans. So, Americans don't view this as a partisan issue. Most Americans support net neutrality. So, by saying that this law is extremist, you're actually proving to be the extremist because Californian lawmakers are just doing what their constituents want them to do. This is something that lawmakers across the country should be doing, quite frankly, because Americans want neutrality. We want a free and open internet. We don't want you to empower these internet service providers to be able to control the content that we see. We just want to pay one price and access the totality of the internet. But since there's money to be made and since these ISPs are buying off politicians, essentially contributing millions of dollars each year to their campaigns and also lobbying them relentlessly while they're on the side of ISPs. So, normal Americans, we support net neutrality. Nobody should be against net neutrality unless you are either a shareholder for Verizon or Comcast or AT&T or you sit on their boards or unless you're a politician who actually benefits from campaign contributions and they just paid you off and now you're trying to do their bidding since they paid you to do that. But the fact remains that no matter how hard you go after net neutrality, this issue is a losing battle for you. It is... A political battle that will exact a high cost on Republicans and any lawmaker, quite frankly, across the country that chooses to go against the American people, because again, we've spoken, we support net neutrality, and if you're against net neutrality, you're against the American people. So this lawsuit will go forward, and I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm still thankful that California decided to pass this, and I am... optimistic. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but the fact that Jerry Brown signed this into law, this is important. Even if we all kind of anticipated that this would happen, it still needs to happen. Lawmakers still need to take action to protect net neutrality because it's too important to not protect. And in the meanwhile, while this lawsuit plays out, I think it's incumbent on all of us to show up to our local city councils and and demand municipal broadband because that's really the way of the future it'll end the debate once and for all and we will no longer have to rely on internet service providers like verizon and comcast to get internet that is the ultimate goal when it comes to having a free and open internet and really securing a free and open internet for generations to come So to absolutely nobody's surprise, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is still very much a shill for the broadband industry, and currently, he just proposed a policy that the FCC approved that is essentially a $2 billion giveaway to wireless carriers, and at this point, he's just flaunting how much of a shell he is in our faces. So as John Brodkin of Ars Technical Reports, the Federal Communications Commission today finalized an order that will prevent city and town governments from charging wireless carriers about $2 billion worth of fees related to deployment of wireless equipment, such as small cells. The decision has angered both large and small municipalities, as we reported last week. The FCC's Republican majority says that limiting local fees will cause carriers to build 5G networks in rural and sparsely populated areas where it would otherwise be financially unfeasible but the order doesn't require carriers to deploy any more broadband than they otherwise would have and carriers already promised nationwide 5g networks before the fcc made its proposal comb through the text of this decision you will not find a single commitment made to providing more service in remote communities FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel, the FCC's only Democrat, said before today's vote. Look for any statements made to Wall Street. Not one wireless carrier has said that this action will result in a change in its capital expenditures in rural areas. The $2 billion savings is less than 1% of the estimated $275 billion that carriers will have to spend to deploy 5G small cells throughout the U.S., that level of savings won't spur extra deployment because of the hard economics of rural deployment do not change with this decision, Rosenworcel said. The FCC order suggests upfront application fees of $100 for each small cell and annual fees of up to $270 per small cell, saying that these should cover local government's costs for processing applications and managing deployments on public property. Cities and towns that charge more than that would likely face litigation from carriers and would have to prove that the fees are a reasonable approximation of all costs and are non-discriminatory. The FCC order also limits the kinds of aesthetic requirements cities and towns can impose on carrier deployments. The FCC is telling municipalities which fees are permissible and which are not about what aesthetic choices are viable and which are not, with complete disregard for the fact that these infrastructure decisions do not work the same in New York, New York and New York, Iowa, Rosenworcel said. So this is just a brazen giveaway to these wireless carriers, and you can't think of it as anything but a giveaway because of the evidence. This doesn't accomplish what he's telling you it's going to accomplish he's saying well look this is going to give 5g broadband to rural areas and look we all want 5g i'm one of them does this help with that goal though the answer is no he's just simply fattening the pocketbooks of the ceo's He's doing their bidding for them. Why? Because he wants to work for them. He came from this industry. He was a lawyer for Verizon. And when he leaves the FCC, you can bet your ass he's going to go back to the industry he came from. Probably with a really fat hiring bonus. So he's doing this, disregarding local municipalities, subverting their authority in order to benefit these wireless carriers who are going to get $2 billion. That money is really fundamental for municipal governments. But for wireless carriers, I mean, that's a drop in a bucket. $2 billion? And this is the trend we've seen with Ajit Pai. He does these pro-industry policies, and he makes this argument that, well, look, this is going to help them in this way You know, this is going to mean more money for them. But overall, at the end of the day, this will be beneficial for consumers. But he never backs it up with evidence, never backs it up with evidence and good policymaking. Making sure that you're regulating the industry in a sufficient way means you have to have evidence to back up these claims. Ajit Pai never has evidence. He never presents evidence. He He presents an argument, usually just an ideological argument, saying that deregulation is the best, and then that's that. Never presents evidence. And now he just passed this policy that's a brazen giveaway. I mean, why? Why do this when everyone is watching you, when we see how corrupt you are, when we see how big of a shill you are? Why do something like this that shows that you care more about wireless carriers and their interests than actually protecting consumers? Why? Why do this? I don't get it. But this is how he justified it more so. So, getting back to the article... FCC Chairman Ajit Pai said the decision has won significant support from mayors, local officials, and state legislators, and he criticized those cities and towns that oppose the FCC's decision. To be fair, there are some local governments that don't like this order, Pai said. They would like to continue extracting as much money as possible in fees from the private sector and forcing companies to navigate a maze of regulatory hurdles in order to deploy wireless infrastructure. Pai claimed that the fees carriers are charged in big cities "...prevent them from investing in rural areas." Again, no evidence for this. "...big city taxes on 5G slow down deployment and also jeopardize the construction of 5G networks in suburbs and rural America," he said. "...but Pi offered no evidence that deployment decisions in rural areas are affected by permit fees in big cities." Carriers' previous actions show that savings from tax cuts and deregulation don't necessarily cause new deployment. Comcast and AT&T laid off thousands of employees less than a year ago after claiming they would create thousands of new jobs in exchange for a federal tax cut. Shortly after the FCC voted to eliminate net neutrality rules, Charter announced a meaningful decline in capital investment. The National Association of Counties and the National League of Cities also criticized the FCC decision. Over 100 local governments from 22 states filed comments in opposition to the proposed ruling during the FCC's comment period. The group said, The FCC's impractical actions will significantly impede local governments' ability to serve as trustees of public property, safety, and well-being. The decision will transfer significant local public resources to private companies without securing any guarantee of public benefit in return. And that's such an important point to make. So he's doing... What he's been doing since he became FCC chairman, he's trying to tie the hands of state and local governments to make sure that they don't have as much power to regulate wireless carriers and internet service providers. He did this with net neutrality. They asked him, and they started lobbying, really, for the FCC during his um, the decision process and the comment process for net neutrality. Verizon and other lobbyists started promoting this idea that maybe the FCC should include a provision in their order that stops states from imposing their own net neutrality laws in the event they disagree with the FCC's repeal. And just weeks later, he added a provision that does just what they wanted. So it's kind of been another trend of Ajit Pai to not just do their bidding, but tie the hands of local governments to make sure that they are less effective and in some cases incapable of regulating these industries that are absolutely greedy. They have a profit motive. They're driven by increasing shareholder value. And he's making sure that they have more power and state and local governments have less power to regulate them. And at the end of the day, he's saying this is going to be beneficial to the consumer when the opposite is true. Allowing state and local governments to actually regulate wireless carriers and internet service providers, that's better for the consumer because state and local governments, they're acting in the interest of consumers because that's who gets them elected. Whereas companies like Comcast and Verizon, they're acting with the interests of their investors and shareholder values because that's what drives them. That's what corporations are motivated by. So it's just another giveaway that's surprising to nobody, but we can't not talk about this because this is still important. The FCC has been captured by the industry, and with everything that Ajit Pai does, it just proves this more and more, and it's despicable. In the span of just one week, So much has happened regarding the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process, and stepping back, you know, all things considered, I'm genuinely stunned that Republicans are still trying to shove him down our throats, considering the case against him now is so overwhelming, considering that the Federalist Society has literally dozens of other right-wing extremists that Donald Trump could appoint instead of Kavanaugh that have identical judicial philosophies but without all of the baggage but nonetheless they're not backing down they want Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court and when President Trump was asked whether or not he even considered naming a replacement for Kavanaugh the answer was an unequivocal no
1: have you thought at all about a replacement for Judge Kavanaugh
3: not even a little bit not even
0: a little bit. In other words, this is the hill that they're willing to die on because this is exacting a really high political cost. And they're starting to lose the American people. And when you look at public opinion polls, one from Quinnipiac released just the other day, they actually found that 48% of Americans are now against Kavanaugh's confirmation, with 42% remaining on Kavanaugh's side. And 58% think Christine Blasey Ford was honest in her testimony. But in spite of that, again, this is really mind-boggling to me, they are sticking with their guy. So, let's go through the reasons why Brett Kavanaugh should not be on the Supreme Court. First of all, one of the main things that I think is problematic is that he broke one of the cardinal rules when it comes to these confirmation processes. You never ever want to appear to be a political actor, right? Supreme Court justices, they always have to pretend to be apolitical, even if nobody believes them, even if we all know that you're just going to get on the court and do whatever the party that appointed you wants, but nonetheless... At least publicly, you have to maintain this facade of being apolitical. However, Brett Kavanaugh did not do that. And during his testimony, he decided to come up with this absurd conspiracy theory about the Democratic Party and how really this is them. This is a witch hunt against him that they fabricated.
1: This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit. Fueled with apparent pent up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left wing opposition groups.
0: But if we're supposed to believe that, then why didn't Democrats use the same strategy when it came to Neil Gorsuch? Why did they choose to save this strategy for you and not bring forward someone with false allegations against Neil Gorsuch? It's almost as if he's concocting these conspiracy theories To save his own ass and really if you're the good person that you say you are then you wouldn't be acting like an asshole when we're all watching you would have shook the hand of the parkland victim's father even if you didn't know that that was a parkland victim's father it's still a rude thing to do who would just look someone in the eye and refuse to shake their hand when everyone is watching and really to grasp how big of a condescending asshole brett kavanaugh really is this is how he treated amy klobuchar when she asked him a very relevant question
4: but you're saying there's never been a case where you drank so much that you didn't remember what happened the night before or part of what happened. That's you're asking about, yeah, blackout. I don't know. Have you? C- could you answer the question, Judge? I just so you that's not happened. Is that your answer? Yeah, and I'm curious if you have. I have no drinking problem, Judge. Yeah, nor do I. Okay. Thank you.
0: This is your guy, Republicans. Really, this is your guy this is the hill you're willing to die on i mean i I don't i don't get it and just the mere fact that people are questioning him that members of the senate judiciary committee questioned him about these very serious allegations was enough to make lindsey graham apoplectic
5: i cannot imagine what
0: you and your family have gone through you're looking for a fair process you came to the wrong town at the wrong time my friend Lindsey Graham is the biggest drama queen ever. Now, throughout the process, Brett Kavanaugh made it very clear that he did not want an FBI investigation. He was incredibly dodgy and evasive whenever anyone asked him about the prospect of investigating him. And when we finally did get an investigation, well, Donald Trump's administration initially put so much limitations on the FBI that they likely wouldn't have been able to produce any meaningful conclusions. And then Trump lied about the fact that he was limiting the investigation when even Fox News at that point was reporting on the limited scope of this investigation. And then finally, after Jeff Flake and Susan Collins spoke with the White House Counsel's office, then Trump finally agreed to actually... Widen the scope of the investigation. Now, even if you're one of the individuals that believes that Brett Kavanaugh is innocent <laughs> and that Christine Blasey Ford has the wrong guy, well, that still doesn't change the fact that he perjured himself. He's trying to audition to be on the Supreme Court, essentially. This is basically a job interview, and he lied. Someone who is going to be dictating this country's interpretation of the Constitution for decades should not be on the Supreme Court if he committed perjury multiple times on national television. He lied about what being Renata alum meant in his yearbook. He lied about the meaning of boofing and the devil's triangle. And now one of his former classmates has come forward and contends that, well, he's lying about something else. He's lying about his drinking problem. So as CNN reports, Chad Luddington, a Yale classmate of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, accused him on Sunday of being untruthful in his testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee and making a blatant mischaracterization of his drinking while in college. And when we go to his full statement, it states, I have been contacted by numerous reporters about Brett Kavanaugh and have not wanted to say anything because I had nothing to contribute about what kind of justice he would be. I knew Brett at Yale because I was a classmate and a varsity basketball player, and Brett enjoyed socializing with athletes. Indeed, athletes formed the core of Brett's social circle. In recent days, I have become deeply troubled by what has been a blatant mischaracterization by Brett himself of his drinking at Yale. When I watched Brett and his wife being interviewed on Fox News on Monday, and when I watched Brett deliver his testimony under oath to the Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday, I cringed. For the fact is, at Yale—and I could speak to no other times— Brett was a frequent drinker and a heavy drinker. I know because especially in our first two years of college, I often drank with him. On many occasions, I heard Brett slur his words and I saw him staggering from alcohol consumption, not all of which was beer. When Brett got drunk, he was often belligerent and aggressive. On one of the last occasions, I purposely socialized with Brett. I witnessed him respond to a semi-hostile remark, not by diffusing the situation, but by throwing his beer in the man's face and and starting a fight that ended with one of our mutual friends in jail. I do not believe that the heavy drinking or even loudish behavior of an 18 or 21-year-old should condemn a person for the rest of his life. I would be a hypocrite to think so. However, I have direct and repeated knowledge about his drinking and his disposition while drunk, and I do believe that Brett's actions as a 53-year-old federal judge matter. If he lied about his past actions on national television, and more especially, while speaking under oath in front of the United States senate i believe those lies should have consequences it is truth that is at stake and i believe that the ability to speak the truth even when it does not reflect well upon oneself is a paramount quality we seek in our nation's most powerful judges i can unequivocally say that in denying the possibility that he ever blacked out from drinking and in downplaying the degree and frequency of his drinking brett has not told the truth now let me be clear nobody's judging his character because he was a drinker at a young age. That's not why we're passing judgment on Brett Kavanaugh. We're passing judgment on him because he lied about his character back in the day. Now, besides that, another problem is that Brett Kavanaugh also insists that he didn't hear about any of these allegations until the stories broke nationally. So when we all heard about it, that's when Brett Kavanaugh himself also heard about these allegations, but there's now evidence... Suggesting that he lied about that as well. And as NBC News reports, text messages suggest Kavanaugh wanted to refute accuser's claim before it became public. And they go on to explain in the days leading up to a public allegation that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself to a college classmate, the judge and his team were communicating behind the scenes with friends to refute the claim according to text messages obtained by NBC News. Carrie Burcham, who was at Yale with both Kavanaugh and his accuser, Deborah Ramirez, has tried to get those messages to the FBI for its newly reopened investigation into the matter, but says she has yet to be contacted by the Bureau. The texts between Burcham and Karen Yarosavage, Both friends of Kavanaugh suggest that the nominee was personally talking with former classmates about Ramirez's story in advance of the New Yorker article that made her allegation public. In one message, Yara Savage said Kavanaugh asked her to go on the record in his defense. Two other messages show communications between Kavanaugh's team and former classmates in advance of the story. The texts also demonstrate that Kavanaugh and Ramirez were more socially connected than previously understood and that Ramirez was uncomfortable comfortable around Kavanaugh when they saw each other at a wedding 10 years after they graduated. Bertram's efforts also show that some potential witnesses have been unable to get important information to the FBI. Now again, this does not confirm that He is guilty of these allegations beyond a shadow of a doubt. But it does give us evidence, more evidence, that he committed perjury multiple times. And someone who committed perjury shouldn't just not be on the Supreme Court, but they should be prosecuted. This is a sitting judge. So if you commit perjury, if you lie under oath, you need to be impeached. You need to be out of a job because if your job is to rule on the constitutionality of laws then if you can't follow the laws yourself, then you shouldn't be on the Supreme Court, on the highest court. So let's go over the case against Kavanaugh. He is someone who committed perjury numerous times. He's shown to not be fit for the Supreme Court or have the temperament needed to be a Supreme Court justice. He's overtly political publicly. And when you put all of that aside, Brett Kavanaugh is constitutionally illiterate. He doesn't give a damn about the Fourth Amendment He disregards an entire amendment of the U.S. Constitution, thinks that the NSA should be able to spy on Americans without a warrant, and he also doesn't even believe that the federal government should be allowed to impose even the bare minimum when it comes to regulations. He's literally against net neutrality. So, not only is he a horrible person who committed perjury and is accused of very serious allegations, rape, sexual assault but he also is just constitutionally illiterate so the case against him is enormous but with that being said it's still the case that Republicans are defending him and in fact Mitch McConnell is saying there's going to be a vote on him very soon one thing for
4: sure the Senate will vote on Judge
0: Kavanaugh here on this floor this week Now, the question you were probably thinking when you saw Mitch McConnell make that statement was that, well, what if the FBI hasn't concluded their investigation? Well, so be it. They're still going to have an up or down vote on Brett Kavanaugh regardless. So if they do hold a vote, there should be nationwide protests if this guy is confirmed. Because I can't think of anyone less qualified to be on the Supreme Court than Brett Kavanaugh. And again, I'm being honest when I say I'd oppose anyone Republicans put forward, but Republicans have dozens of recommendations that the Federalist Society has that would rule identically to Brett Kavanaugh. And they're still choosing to roll the dice on Kavanaugh, even if they're spending all the political capital they have on this guy. Unbelievable. So he may very well be confirmed in spite Of everything we now know against him, in spite of the huge case that's continuing to grow against him. But in the meantime, we've got to do what we can to fight to stop him. So there's a few key senators that we need to call because again, if he's confirmed, this would be a disaster. This is someone who would influence the judiciary for decades potentially. We have to stop this. So Jeff Flake's number is two zero two. 224-4521. Susan Collins' number is 202-224-2523. Lisa Murkowski's number is 202-224-6665. Joe Manchin's number is 202-224-3954. Heidi Heitkamp's number is 202-224-2043. And the reason why I'm giving you the numbers of these five senators is because they really are going to be the deciding votes here. And if you're going to focus your calls on anyone, if you can make one call, I'd say choose between either Jeff Flake or Heidi Heitkamp. She is up for re-election and she's currently pulling behind the Republicans. So odds are she's going to do what she thinks will appease her constituents and vote to approve Kavanaugh. And I think we've got to exert as much pressure as possible and let her know that she's not going to get re-elected if she votes to confirm him. She's not. And also, Jeff Flake, let him know that this is going to be his lasting legacy if he decides to do this. Now, I actually do want to call Jeff Flake on camera, just because even if he's made it clear that he's still probably going to vote for Kavanaugh, well, I want to do what we can. I think he's still probably the, the most malleable of the Republicans, so we'll give it a try, but please make a call yourself. So again, Jeff Flake's number is 202-224-224. Four five two one. I'll probably have to leave a message. Washington D.C. office. If you would like to leave a comment about an issue, please press one.
5: If you have a scheduling request, please. Press I'll just leave a message. Please leave your comment after the tone. If you would like a written response, please visit
0: our website at flake.senate.gov. <laughs> Hello Jeff Flake, I just wanted to call you and tell you that you should absolutely not vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh because if you do, that will be a stain on your legacy that we're never going to let you live down because 48% of the American people are against Brett Kavanaugh. This is according to a Quinnipiac poll. And additionally, even if the allegations from Christine Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez are false, this is someone who committed perjury under oath in front of all of your faces multiple times on multiple issues in numerous instances. And additionally, this is an individual who is constitutionally illiterate. He is against the Fourth Amendment. He thinks that the NSA should be able to spy on Americans without a warrant. Now, I don't know your position on that, but this is something that is completely unacceptable, and clearly he's not fit to dictate Supreme Court rulings for the next couple of decades. So vote no on him. Otherwise, this will be your legacy, and you've got to live with this for the rest of your life. Make the right decision. Do the right thing. Do not vote to confirm him. Vote no on Brett Kavanaugh. So that's it. I mean, you don't have to word it in a perfect way. I certainly did it. But so long as you're getting the message across to vote no, it's all you can do short from just showing up and protesting their offices. And shout out to the DSA who actually showed up and occupied Joe Manchin's office in order to influence him to vote no. We've got to exert pressure, guys, because this is very serious. This is a fight for our lives. This is incredibly important. And I can't even imagine how big of a disaster he'd be if he was confirmed. So we have to do what we can. The allegations by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh has gotten a lot of people talking about Anita Hill recently, and for those of you like me who were too young to remember what happened at the time, here's a quick refresher. So as Olivia Waxman of Time explains, on October eleventh, 1991, when she testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee, Anita Hill became the face of what was arguably the biggest sexual harassment case ever seen in the United States up to that time. Hill, then a 35-year-old University of Oklahoma law professor and commercial law expert, told the committee that 43-year-old Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had ambushed her with unsolicited dirty talk when they had worked together at the Department of Education and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the early 1980s. Hill said that because they worked together at the time, she feared that if she spoke up or resisted, she might lose her job. Hill also told the committee that Thomas had once told her that he knew that if she ever told anyone of his behavior, that it would ruin his career. It didn't, however. Thomas denied everything and at one point characterized the hearing as a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks, which he said played to the worst stereotypes we have about black men in this country. Describing the experience of having reporters comb through his private life as Kafkaesque, he implored the senators to vote one way or the other to end the hearing. When they did vote, the Senate confirmed Thomas 52 to 48 on October 15th he now sits on the supreme court. Now, that's a broad overview of the situation, but I do want to dive a little bit deeper because if you thought that that situation was a debacle, well, the way that the Senate Judiciary Committee treated Anita Hill, that was a national embarrassment in and of itself and Vice actually put together a really good compilation just demonstrating how awful she was treated and it was honestly hard to watch now. Here is a portion of that video.
1: Tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged. You testified this morning that the most embarrassing question involved, this is not too bad, women's large breasts, that's a word we use all the time. You testified, you drew an inference that Judge Thomas might want you to look at pornographic films, but you told the FBI specifically that he never asked you to watch the film, is that correct? The fact is, flatly, he never asked you to look at pornographic movies with him. You said you took it to mean Judge Thomas wanted to have sex with you, but in fact, he never did ask you to have sex, correct?
4: No, he did not ask me to have sex. He did continually pressure me to go out with him, continually. And he would not accept my explanation as one as being, being valid.
1: So that when you said you, you took it to mean we ought to have sex, that that was an inference? A mere allegation?
4: Senator, I would suggest to you
1: that for me these are more than mere allegations. How reliable? is your testimony in October of 1991 on events that occurred eight, 10 years ago. How sure can you expect this committee to be on the accuracy of your statements?
4: I guess one really does have to understand something about the nature of sexual harassment. Uh, it is very difficult for people to come forward with these things.
1: I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? The issue of fantasy has arisen. Are you interested in writing a book? It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill anything any member wishes to ask her to plumb the depths of her credibility. You are not now drawing a conclusion that Judge Thomas sexually harassed you.
4: Yes, I am drawing that conclusion. That well, is Well, then my... I don't understand. Pardon
1: me? Then I don't understand. Do you have anything to gain by coming here? Has anybody promised you anything by coming forth with this story now? All we've heard for 103 days is about a, a most remarkable man, and they scoured is every shred of life and nobody but you has come forward if what you say this man said to you occurred why in God's name would you ever speak to a man like that the rest of your life that's a very good question
4: and I'm sure that I can't not answer that to your satisfaction that is one of the things that I have tried to do today I have suggested that I was afraid of retaliation. I was afraid of damage to my professional life. And I believe you have to understand that this response, and, that, and that's one of the things that I have come to understand about harassment, that this response, this kind of response is not atypical. And I can't explain. It takes, it takes an expert in psychology to explain how that can happen but it can happen cuz it happened to me.
1: Well, I, I just it just seems that so incredible to me. That is, it, that is a most contradictory and puzzling thing for me.
0: Now for me that was just so difficult to watch and I actually got kind of emotional the first time I saw that because when you really look into Anita Hill's eyes you can tell that she was in disbelief at the questions they were asking her and you can kind of just see that human pain and it it was it was tough the way that she was treated was completely unacceptable but in addition to the way that the senate judiciary committee embarrassed her Well, there was also a really vicious, perhaps one of the most vicious smear campaigns lobbed against her ever by the right wing, with one of them literally writing an entire book about her That was just nothing more than smear. And this individual who published this literally coined the phrase a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. And today we're seeing a lot of similarities between the Anita Hill and the Christine Blasey Ford situation and individuals who are operatives for the Democratic Party are speaking up. And in fact, one Democratic Party operative named David Brock, I'm sure we're all familiar with him, who actually worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016. He actually contended that the way Christine Blasey Ford is being treated is worse than the way Republicans treated Anita Hill.
1: And you know, when this started, I thought, you know, this is going to be the Anita Hill treatment all over again. This is shabbier treatment than Anita Hill, because this is just an outrage that there are no, no other accusers being presented, none of the corroborating witnesses mark judge as you said uh and and no fbi investigation still at this moment
0: now what's really interesting about that clip and i'm sure some of you already know this is that as he talks about how awful republicans treated anita hill what david brock doesn't tell you is that he was part of that process that book that i showed you earlier guess who wrote that book that was david brock he's the individual that coined the term a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty so really he has the nerve to talk about how Christine Blasey Ford is being treated when he absolutely dragged Anita Hill's name through the mud. But, to be fair to them, he's since switched political teams and he's recanted a lot of the horrible things he said about Anita Hill and he now acts as a smear merchant. the Democratic Party, and he usually targets progressives and tries to smear them instead. And you can see a lot of his work in action if you go back to the 2016 election, where he tried to imply that Bernie Sanders was sexist and possibly racist. Now, regardless if David Brock apologized and recanted the horrible things he said about Anita Hill, that will always be a stain on his legacy. However, David Brock isn't the only Democrat whose legacy was tarnished by the treatment of Anita Hill, because the Kavanaugh debacle has reminded folks just how terrible likely 2020 presidential candidate Joe Biden handled the situation in 1991 himself. And as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, he should have not only done more to rein in Republicans who were making a mockery of the process and treating Anita Hill terribly, But he shouldn't have done so much at the behest of Republicans under the guise of being bipartisan and being fair. But really, the worst thing Biden did that has tarnished his legacy is he didn't let other witnesses come forward and give their testimony. So as HuffPost's Amanda Turkle explains, Biden's most divisive and perhaps most significant decision was not calling the other three women who could have strengthened Hill's allegations against Thomas to testify. While the women's interviews with committee staff were entered into the record, that did not have the same impact as public testimony. One of the women was Angela Wright, who worked with Thomas at the EEOC. She said Thomas asked her about the size of her breasts, pressured her to date him, commented on the physical appearance of women in the office and showed up at her apartment one night without warning. Unlike Hill, however, Wright said she considered Thomas's behavior obnoxious but not sexual harassment. Wright had complained of Thomas' unwanted behavior toward Rose Jourdain, a colleague at the EEOC at the time. As Meyer and Abramson wrote in their account of the trial, Jourdain independently remembered the bra size incident and also recalled Wright telling her Thomas had talked about the sexiness of her legs sukari hardnett was the third woman she worked for thomas at the eeoc after hill left but said hill's account of his behavior rang true so the question is how can biden a democrat who chaired the senate judiciary committee at the time not allow these women to come forward and give their testimony he bungled that situation had he acted in a more competent and responsible way it might be the case that clarence thomas a very conservative supreme court justice wouldn't be on the supreme court right now but joe biden in part got us clarence thomas and his legacy is so problematic with regard his handling of the Anita Hill case, that the New York Times actually published an article by Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin who question whether or not he'll be able to even overcome this if he does, in fact, choose to run for president, seeing that the wound has been reopened for a lot of women who watched his behavior and were appalled by it. Now, the authors go on to argue as he actively explores a 2020 presidential run, the 75-year-old former vice president is coming under increased scrutiny from his fellow Democrats because of his role in the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings in 1991, as explosive debates over gender, sex, and Supreme Court overshadow the themes of economic fairness that Mr. Biden trumpeted across the Northeast in recent days. His name has been invoked frequently in recent days, mainly by Republicans for leading the 1991 hearings with an all male, all white judiciary committee aggressively questioning Anita Hill about claims that Judge Thomas had sexually harassed her. The hearings have long been a source of discomfort with Mr. Biden among Democrats who remember the process. Publicly, Mr. Biden has expressed regret about the way the Hill hearings unfolded. Privately, he has also described it as unfair that Ms. Hill continues to hold him responsible for her rough treatment in the Senate. Advisors to Mr. Biden said there was no current plan for confronting his handling of the Thomas domination more exhaustively, and Mr. Biden has not reached out to Ms. Hill during the Kavanaugh hearings. Yet, Mr. Biden's associates say he would not be deterred from seeking the White House by the thought of having his record picked over. And understand that this is so serious for Joe Biden that there are actually members of the Democratic Party establishment that are saying his success in the 2020 Democratic Party primary, will hinge on how he handled this, handles this. Barbara Boxer, for example, is on the record saying he needs to address it and it could be a plus for him, but if he botches this response, it could hurt him. So, this is very serious for Joe Biden and he has a lot to explain. I mean, think of the nerve of this guy who thinks it's unfair that Anita Hill still holds him responsible. Well, look, I get it. You know, time has passed, it's been decades since then, but. Clarence Thomas is still on the Supreme Court doing damage, in part because of you, Joe. Anita Hill, her name was dragged through the mud because you failed to do your job as the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. You wanted to play patty cake with Republicans, and you refused to limit the parameters of the discussion. You basically said, or you literally said, not verbatim, but I'm paraphrasing, he said that... They should be able to ask her anything in order to get to the bottom of it. I mean, you saw it in the clip that I played.
1: It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill anything any member wishes to ask her to plumb the depths of her credibility.
0: So his handling was absolutely atrocious and he definitely needs to explain why he mishandled this situation so fundamentally. I mean, he... To say he bungled this would be an understatement. So there are other issues with Joe Biden. There's the crime bill and whatnot, his centrism and corporatism. But this truly is one of the biggest blemishes on his legacy. And if he doesn't apologize and vociferously speak out against his actions there, this will hurt him. And even though... This is technically beneficial to progressives who want Bernie Sanders to be successful in 2020. I think more importantly, he needs to do the right thing morally because this is what would help give individuals like Anita Hill closure. So this was really, again, seeing the way she was treated was heartbreaking. And I hope that she gets the closure that she's looking for because she did not deserve to be treated like that. I, I believe her. And... Maybe it would have been the case that we could have defeated Clarence Thomas had Joe Biden allowed other witnesses who corroborated Anita Hill's testimony to come forward. It hasn't even been a year since the Republican Party passed tax cuts for multinational corporations and the rich. But can you guess what House Republicans just did again? They passed another multi-trillion dollar tax cut for multinational corporations and the rich. Not for you, for the wealthy. They're so shameless that they don't even hide it anymore. Just out in the open, they're showing their disregard for the poor And worship for the rich. And they don't care that it makes them look horrible. They don't care that clearly they're sending a huge message to the working class. They're doing this anyway. So... Let's get to the story, and I'm going to tell you why I think they're doing this, even if it has no chance of passing in the Senate. So, as Glenn Fleischman of Fortune explains, with attention fixed on the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a new $3.1 trillion tax cut on Friday. The vote was 220 to 191, including three Democrats. The down-to-the-wire 2017 Tax Act passed in late December contained a mix of permanent and temporary changes that happened. To result in a net increased cost that fell within a structural limit of $1.5 trillion that allowed the Senate to approve the bill with a simple majority. The House's new bill takes effect starting in 2025 and would add $600 billion to the national debt within the next decade and then. $3.2 $3.2 trillion in the 10 years after that, according to Howard Gleckman of the Tax Policy Center. Despite the House vote, it is unlikely the Senate will take up the legislation. The first round of tax cuts landed with a thud, with even a leaked Republican National Committee poll reported on by Bloomberg News showing American voters thought it benefited large corporations and rich Americans by an overall 2-to-1 margin and the same margin among independent voters. So, this is absolutely egregious, and I'm not worried that this is actually going to be codified into law, because I don't think this would pass the Senate, because Republicans know that the American people just aren't on their side when it comes to their tax bill. They're framing that this was a tax cut for the working class, by and large, has not been bought by Americans. They know the truth. They know that this is a large giveaway to the rich. And did they include some crumbs for the poor in there yes they have the doubling of the standard deduction but that's all temporary what's permanent are tax cuts that benefit the wealthy so here's why i think they're doing this so we have the midterms quickly approaching And this is them basically, in my opinion, sending a message to all of their donors saying, hey, if, you know, these large multinational corporations, if you guys really liked the tax cuts that they gave you last year, well, if you help us get elected, there's a lot more where that came from. So this is kind of them fishing for more campaign contributions perhaps seeing internal polling realizing that they may be in trouble seeing that you know when you look at aggregate public opinion polls just on a general ballot democrats are currently ahead they might be in trouble so in order to maintain control of the house this is kind of them putting out that bat signal or really the dollar signal to their corporate donors saying, we're going to need help. We need a boost. But here's my question to Republicans. If you really want to get elected, why don't you try giving the American people a tax cut? And I mean, giving them a real tax cut. Why do you always target your tax policy to benefit the very wealthy? When do we get a tax break? When do your constituents, the people who got you in office, not the dollar bills, but the people, the real people who voted, when do they get a tax break? Their answer would be well, we just gave them one. Right, but that's temporary. When do the American people get a break? People are struggling. People are living paycheck to paycheck. People are struggling to pay the bills. And what are you doing for them? Absolutely not a goddamn thing. Republicans have been in power for two years now, and what have they done for the American people? Absolutely nothing. And that's despicable. And kind of getting back to, you know, public opinion on this, I'm so glad that the American people did not buy into the Republican Party's framing about this being a middle-class tax cut because that's just so obviously false. So I'm so glad that they didn't, didn't buy it. And what we saw, which really irritated me to no end, was a lot of corporations come out and basically do PR on behalf of Republicans. We saw companies like Home Depot say, "Oh, well, you know, we're giving our workers a $1,000 bonus because of the tax cut for, that uh Republicans gave us." But let me ask you this. Do you think that their workers are going to get bonuses again this year when nobody is paying attention, when Republicans are not desperately trying to convince us that their tax cut was for middle-class Americans? Of course not. And I would love to be proven wrong. I would love for companies like uh, Home Depot and Walmart to give their employees bonuses. But mark my words, this year, I don't think we're going to be seeing very many headlines, if any, of these same companies who gave their Employees' uh, bonuses last year again. And that's because they're no longer trying to do propaganda for the Republican Party. There's no longer this PR effort at the behest of Republicans who are, or who were rather, trying to desperately prove to us that, you know, this was a tax cut for working Americans. Now, of course, since this would cost trillions of dollars, I've got to ask the question that progressives are always asked how are you going to pay for it? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pointed this out too on Twitter. She states, Where are the pundits asking Republicans how they plan to slash Social Security and Medicare to, quote, pay for their next $4 trillion in tax cuts for the 1%? Or do we only worry about scarcity when it comes to funding chemo and college, but not private jets and subliving wages? Exactly. So, Jake Tapper, again, this is a story that's your forte. Why haven't you talked about this? you claimed that you are genuine in your concern for fiscal responsibility and that you're going to hold both parties accountable. Well, for some reason, we only see you applying pressure to progressives when they talk about programs that would cost money, that would help people. But when it comes to tax cuts for the rich or money for death and destruction, increasing the Pentagon budget, military spending, Jake Tapper doesn't care. He's silent. Doesn't say anything about this. So, It's frustrating for two reasons, not only because it's a double standard, but also because we're being bombarded with propaganda, and thankfully, Republicans or uh, voters are not buying it. But this is a message to not just Republican Party's donors, this is a message to you. Republicans don't care about you, they don't give a damn about you, they haven't done a single thing since they've been in power to help you, Republicans Only care about the rich because, surprise, surprise, they're also very, very rich. A few weeks ago, I told you about how Senator Bernie Sanders was taking on giant multinational corporations like Amazon and Walmart. All in an effort to get them to pay their workers a living wage. And at the time, he was attacked relentlessly by the mainstream media. In fact, this is what USA Today said about Bernie Sanders' effort. They said in Bernie Sanders versus Amazon's Jeff Bezos, only workers lose. Well, fast forward a couple of weeks later to today, and it turns out USA Today was completely wrong because as vice reports jeff bezos just caved to activists and bernie sanders and raised amazon's minimum wage to 15 dollars in other words bernie sanders beat jeff bezos here what happened usa today and wall street journal and uh, other news pundits who said that it'd be workers who end up losing You're going to come out and recant this story? Because it looks like your theory was proven wrong. David took on Goliath and David beat Goliath. Bernie won. So what do you have to say now? Looks like Bernie Sanders is actually effective. It looks like Bernie Sanders can actually get things done. So I love this. Now, this pay raise is going to take effect... Pretty quickly. In fact, next month, on November 1st, is when this will take effect. And Bernie Sanders tweeted this out saying, What Mr. Bezos has done today is not only enormously important for Amazon's hundreds of thousands of employees, it could well be a shot heard around the world. I urge corporate leaders around the country to follow Mr. Bezos' lead. And can you guess what happened next? Jeff Bezos thanked! Bernie Sanders saying, Thank you, Senator Sanders. We're excited about this and also hope others will join in. Got him. <laughs> this is my favorite story of the week. This is my favorite story of the week. It didn't take long. Bernie Sanders introduces the Stop Bezos Act, and what happens? Bezos caves. Now, I'll tell you why, you know, this is just... A step in the right direction and why Amazon needs to go further. But for the most part, let's get to the details of the story. And as Vice's Rex Santis reports, the world's richest man has caved to pressure from his workers, activists, and Bernie Sanders and raised the minimum wage at Amazon to $15. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos announced Tuesday that after fielding much criticism, the company would increase the baseline of its workers' wages, affecting about 350,000 employees, including people who work at Whole Foods foods and lobby for an increase in the minimum wage nationwide the federal minimum wage is currently just 7 25 we listened to our critics thought hard about what we wanted to do and decided we want to lead bezos said in a statement we're excited about this change and encourage our competitors and other large employers to join us Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent from Vermont, has personally taken on Amazon as an example of worker exploitation by powerful companies in the United States. In September, Sanders introduced the Stop Bad Employers Zeroing Out Subsidies Act, aka the Stop Bezos Act, that would penalize large companies if their workers are relying on government benefits like food stamps or Medicaid to survive. So, this is huge. It really shows the influence that Bernie Sanders has. And look, let's be real about this. This is only a start. Amazon should absolutely go further. They still need to improve working conditions and not treat their employees like they're robots, actually recognize that they're human beings and they should have dignity, also provide them with health benefits and if they don't already offer them paid sick time and vacation time these are human beings that are working for you that are making you billions of dollars treat them well they made you successful you wouldn't be successful without them so go all the way do everything you can to improve their lives so it's a step in the right direction but nonetheless it's it's a huge step In the right direction, but it's only a start. Now, I want to remind you that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump decided to take on Amazon, and only one of those men won. It was Bernie Sanders, the individual with less political power. He did more than the President of the United States. So if Bernie Sanders can accomplish this as just the United States Senator, can you imagine the change that he could affect if he were to become President of the United States? I mean, this really, really gives me hope. Just being able to shame people and use his bully pulpit, he's proven proving here rather that he's so effective at it that I have no doubt now that he could accomplish so much if he's president. So make no mistake about it, it's likely going to be the case that in January or February or in the first quarter of next year, Bernie Sanders is going to announce his run for the presidency of the United States. And this time, we absolutely hit the ground running. Every single one of us donates as much money as we can. $27 on that first day. If you if you can't afford it, I hear ya. If you can do a dollar or two on that first day, he announces, do what you can. And if you can't even do that, then maybe it's the case that you can spare time to phone bank for him or canvas for him because... We see what Bernie Sanders can do, what he can accomplish as just the senator alone. Well, not really alone, because the activists were also applying pressure, right? So I don't want to discount them. But if you have a President Bernie Sanders and grassroots activism and pressure and momentum, I can't imagine the good that this will do for the country. If Bernie Sanders really put the pedal to the metal on something like Medicare for All, And the grassroots were there to support him. I mean, the thought is really, really soothing. So I'm going to go all out. And I'm going to be as loud as I possibly can be for Bernie Sanders. Because this is an individual that is a hero for the working class. And we all have to make sure that we do what we can to help him win in spite of whatever shenanigans the DNC is going to throw his way. Because this is, this is remarkable. Bernie, he's a beast. Van Jones of CNN spoke with progressive congressional candidates Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and they had a really insightful, I think, conversation about the supposed conundrum that Democrats face. So on one hand, there's this belief that they've got to appeal to white working class voters. And on the other hand, people contend that they need to appeal to the concerns of marginalized communities and focus more on social issues since women of color especially are their most loyal demographic. And I've long maintained on the show that that is essentially a false dichotomy because issues related to the economy and social justice issues These are things that are inextricably linked You shouldn't separate them and really you can't separate them if you want to have a Genuine discussion about meaningful policy and what I'm saying was essentially echoed in this clip But I think that they describe the situation in a more eloquent way than I ever could
6: You talk about the working-class working-class people of color identify with the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. but increasingly working-class white folks, especially working-class white men, Mm -hmm. say, hey, look, you guys are more concerned about immigration and all these other issues. Mm -hmm. You don't care about me. Mm -hmm. Do you have to choose as a Democrat now between, you know, sticking up for some of these uh, racial and and gender issues Mm -hmm. um, and working-class issues for people of color and appealing to the white guys? Uh,
7: No, no, and I think that is the ultimate trap that is set up, that we have to choose between race or class, and we have to choose a side and what to advocate for when really all of these things are so interwoven. I, and I wanna add, I think ultimately we have to think about what is our common struggle. Mm-hmm. And in this country right now, right, everybody is a part of that common struggle. We all want, right, economic security for working people. We all want to make sure that there is uh, vibrancy within our economy by making sure that young people are um, freed from the shackles of student debt.
6: Look, All, all that sounds great. Do you feel the Democrats um, come across that way now? Because sometimes I think uh, other people will tell me when I'm in the red states, it feels like mm-hmm. everybody's really not welcome anymore. And if you don't say it exactly the right way with the right word and intersectionality and blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 mm-hmm. then you're going to get smacked down. Yeah. Now, that doesn't seem very inviting to a lot of people. Yeah, I think... Can you fix that? How are you going to fix that? Well, I think
7: ultimately... (laughs) I think ultimately it's how each of us as individuals choose to interact with those who are not like us. You know, I may have very strong uh, convictions and principles about what justice in America looks like, but really it's going to be listening that heals this nation and when people feel heard in all of their pain wherever that pain comes from. I mean, and I think ultimately, too, it is avoiding the trap, right? It's Mm -hmm. avoiding um, that, you know, saying that one particular issue is more important than another one. Because Mm -hmm. when we're talking about... You know uh the the kind of america we believe in the kind of america we deserve we we are talking about an america that includes everyone that uplifts that everyone that secures
6: prosperity everyone. let me just add-
0: so that was absolutely fantastic and these two women give me so much hope for the future of politics um and i just i hope both of them are elected because i have no doubt that they would be fearless advocates for progressives now getting to the specifics here ocasio-cortez says That is the ultimate trap that is set up. That we have to choose between race or class and that we have to choose a side in what to advocate for when really all of these things are so interwoven. That is so true. You can't separate economic issues from issues related to social justice. You just, you can't do that. And to describe it as a trap is really important because it shows that anyone who talks this way is being disingenuous. Anyone who says, well, you need to focus on social justice issues exclusively, or you need to focus on getting the white working class, they're wrong and they're giving Democrats bad advice. Now, before I get into more of what I think, Ilhan Omar said, ultimately, we have to think about what is our common struggle And in this country right now, everybody is part of the common struggle. We all want economic security for working people. We all want to make sure that there is vibrancy within our economy by making sure that young people are free from the shackles of student debt. And I couldn't agree more because when you really set up this dichotomy of us versus them within a contingent of the electorate that's supposed to be aligned, the left, you really just set yourself up for failure. And what they're saying here matters because if you want to appeal to voters and have messaging that will have the broadest reach possible then you can't just focus on the white working class or people of color. You have to do both simultaneously. You have to. And really, this has only become a topic of discussion since the 2016 election when centrists accused Bernie Sanders of not focusing enough on social justice issues and when progressives accused Hillary Clinton of not focusing at all on economic issues. Fairly so, I think. Now, the truth is, issues related to race and social justice, those are... Progressive issues. Those are populist issues. The American people are on our side when it comes to social issues. And additionally, when it comes to the working class, it makes no sense at all to disaggregate the working class. Why do people speak about the white working class when we should be talking about the totality of the working class? Because policies that would economically help the whole working class. Well, that appeals to everyone. That appeals to black working-class voters. Latina and Latino working-class voters. White working-class voters. I mean, we all want the same thing. So policies like Medicare for All obviously would benefit everyone. But of course, we still have to go further and really target issues related to social justice and be as loud as we possibly can be about the need for criminal justice reform. And we need to be on the side of people who are speaking out against police brutality. And really, these are things that the Democratic Party has basically always advocated for. And there are certainly things that liberals and progressives in general have always advocated for. But centrist Democrats only recently started to disaggregate these two things in order to maintain support from corporate America. Because let's face it, when you support gay marriage, that doesn't hurt corporate profits. So Democrats can be as vocal as they possibly can be when it comes to those types of social issues, even if it took them a really fucking long time. But they can be as vocal as they want to, and they're not really going to see much threats from their donors who are going to say, well, if you support this issue, we're going to withhold funding. But if they choose to get on board with a policy like Medicare for All, well, that's a lot more difficult for them because there's a cost. So if they say, we want to make a Medicare for All system a reality, what's going to happen? Then- that existentially threatens the health insurance industry who spends millions of dollars helping Democrats get elected. So there's a cost associated with that. So what do Democrats do to kind of offset that cost and kind of have it both ways? Well, lately they've been focusing more on social issues because that's one way they can kind of prove to us that they're still liberal while still doing the bidding of corporate America. So it was convenient for them to disaggregate you know, the uh, the social justice issues from the economic issues, when you, they never should have done that. If you just focus on social justice issues, but ignore issues that affect the working class, you're not liberal. And conversely, if you focus on just economic issues and you ignore racial justice issues, I don't think you're liberal. But what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar are saying here is that, You have to do both. You have to be the whole package. You have to be someone who's going to be a fierce advocate for racial justice and economic equality. And this is the exact strategy Democrats have got to have in order to win. And to see them say this in the mainstream media is so refreshing because this is something that progressives like myself have been screaming about since it became clear that, you know, the Democratic Party establishment is trying to convince us that social justice issues and economic issues are different, when that's not the case. They've always been related. If you're progressive, you look at these issues, and they're one and the same. They're both equally important, and they're interwoven, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said. So I was I was incredibly happy when I saw them talk about this, and it's such a phenomenal point, and I'm I'm so hopeful, because of candidates like this, that- we actually can affect change. Coke out, Dave Rubin started making a really counterintuitive, frankly nonsensical argument about around the time he had his political awakening, and he asserted that it's not Republicans and conservatives who are the least tolerant in our society, the intolerant ones It's actually the left (laughs) and it's not like he just said this one time and moved on he's asserted this on numerous occasions now i don't know why as a political commentator you'd say something that's so demonstrably false because all someone would have to do is do a quick google search and they'd see oh This guy's full of shit. It's clearly the right who's more intolerant because they're the ones who fought against Dave Rubin's right to marry a man. They're the ones who are against transgender people simply using the bathroom of their choice. They're the ones against safe and legal abortions. They're the ones scoffing at black Americans who speak out against police brutality. They're the ones killing unions and destroying workers' rights. But according to Dave Rubin, don't believe your lying eyes because really it's conservatives who are the ones that are more open-minded and tolerant. It's not the left. And he believes this so much, he even made a video for PragerU talking about it.
3: Who is tolerant? Well, here's the surprise. It's actually those scary right-wingers that the media and the universities demonize every day. I speak from personal experience. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment here, but I still consider myself a liberal. And it's my duty as a liberal to say what I think. I would rather stand for what I believe and be hated than bow down and be loved. The left, sadly, has become utterly intolerant of anyone with whom they disagree. Why? Because they believe that they know how you should live and how you should think. Any deviation, any nonconformity is dangerous to that goal. Believe it or not, the right these days actually welcomes diversity of thought. I can tell you that in the last few years of my political evolution, I've consistently found conservatives to be tolerant and open-minded. Don't take my word for it, though. Test it out for yourself. Go talk to some.
0: (laughs) That was incredibly idiotic, and I apologize for showing you the video because we were all haunted by his stupidity when PragerU was running that ad on basically every single YouTube video, and it was incredibly obnoxious. But nonetheless, I wanted to show you what... Dave Rubin said about tolerance because he actually put that theory to use. He says, Look, if you want to know who's really more tolerant, simply talk to a conservative. Well, he decided to take his own advice and he talked to a conservative specifically about homosexuality, which is something that's very important to Dave Rubin, seeing that he's married to a man. Now, Ben Shapiro is the person he talked to, who is a right wing snowflake triggered by the mere mention of homosexuality. And he, <laughs> it's funny, but in a sad way. So basically, Dave Rubin was clearly cut off guard by just how homophobic this so-called, quote, tolerant conservative is in actuality and still is. So this is hard to watch, but we're going to have to get through it anyway. Will you bake Rubin a wedding cake?
8: <laughs> okay, so,
3: I mean, my answer is... <laughs> well, I'm married already. Right, He's, but, mar- but he's, he's married would, already. But a, an anniversary, but, I, it was my anniversary last week. An anniversary cake would have been nice.
8: Right, So, I, so the answer is... No. And the okay. reason I won't is because as a religious Jew, I, yeah. I do not participate in activities that I believe are sinful. But again, we live in a free country and Dave knows this. He doesn't have to care what I think yeah. about sin. And, and as long as I'm not bothering Dave, I don't see why it's a problem. Yeah. So it's, a, will I, will I, does Dave have a husband? Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, okay. And yeah. are we friends? Yeah. And are we going to go out to dinner sometime in the near future? Yeah. yeah. But, but there's a difference between me just being friends with Dave and me actively participating in an event that I feel
3: is religiously sinful. So let me, okay, so if you wouldn't bake me a cake, that's okay, Mm -hmm. and now, because it's 50-50, I can't bake you a cake, which David's an Uh, incredible chef, and he would have done it kosher the whole thing, man. Yeah, yeah, now I feel bad.
8: He would have done it for you. You got me this close.
3: Putting that aside, you can't have David's kosher cake now. Um, If we were having an anniversary party, would you come? If I was inviting all the crew that we all know, and we were just an anniversary party, we're just having a party, and uh, and I'll even throw in some kosher food for you to make sure you don't have to bring your own food. You
8: know, honestly, I'd have to think about it. I'd have to think about it. In the same See, way. So that's
3: interesting to me, because yeah, that's, that's a different thing.
8: Well, it, not really, because again, it's, if you're a religious person, and yeah. again, take it from the religious perspective, the, from the religious perspective, the question is, are you glorifying something that you think is sinful? Yeah. So if it's a party for something that you think was originally sinful, can you participate in that? So from a religious point of view, that's an actual serious moral question. Yeah. When I go out to dinner with you, the answer is yes, right? Because that's not actually like, let's celebrate something that I feel that you're doing is sinful. But I'd have to I'd have to think about that one. And I'm, I'm being a perfectly like no, I I'm to be as I, straightforward as possible. On I
3: this want you to, so it. it's see that's so interesting to me because it's like if I threw a regular party, just we we're just right. having a party at my house and all the guys that's that right are can I right? like,
8: bake you a cake that had nothing to do with a gay wedding. Right. And I would go to a party with you that has nothing to do with gay marriage.
3: You, would you bake me a regular cake? Could I just have a Thursday
8: yeah, cake? Yeah, sure. I give you a cake. You, you, you well, the well, well, me I mean, yeah. my baking sucks. I'll just buy you one. I want a shittily baked
0: Shapiro cake, and then I'm gonna Then once I get it here, I can do whatever I want with piece of crap.
8: I mean, it's not gonna be good, but it's but it'll be there.
0: Yes. So that was really, really cringeworthy. That was difficult for me to watch as someone who's gay myself because that was... You could just tell how uncomfortable Dave Rubin is. So Ben Shapiro, being the snowflake that he is, wouldn't even agree to bake Dave Rubin a cake. So since Dave Rubin doesn't want Ben Shapiro to defeat his idea that uh, he wants you to believe about the right being more tolerant... Dave Rubin decided to put on some kid gloves and, you know, pose an easier hypothetical to Ben Shapiro that would allow him to still prove his point that, you know, conservatives aren't as intolerant as the left wants you to think. And he said, well, if we're having an anniversary party, would you come? If I were inviting all the crew that we all know and it was just an anniversary party, we're just having a party and I'll even throw in some kosher food for you, Ben Shapiro couldn't even Fucking agree to that. And you could just see it on Dave Rubin's face. He said, See, even that's interesting to me. Yeah. No shit, Sherlock, it's almost as if the left was correct when they say that the right is actually intolerant. It's almost as if evangelicals have a social and political ideology that's fundamentally incompatible with tolerance. And I want you to understand, it's not just that we're talking about social tolerance here, conservatives are legally intolerant as well. Because they don't want Dave Rubin to have rights, so it's not just this, oh, live and let live philosophy. No, the Republican Party is actively fighting to stop gay people from being equal. They actually want to impose their beliefs on us. That's the definition of of intolerance and when you look at public opinion polls republicans are the least supportive of marriage equality and thankfully that's actually starting to change this poll isn't as bad as polls from a few years ago but by and large conservatives are still fighting to stop progress on this very issue legally and socially conservatives currently control all branches of government they're in control of a majority of governorships they control state legislatures most state legislatures across the country let me ask you this dave Is this so-called tolerant conservative party doing anything to stop gay people from being fired simply for being gay in the half of states that you currently still can be fired for? I mean, no. And some states have enacted legislation that actually blocks anti-discrimination laws at the local level. Donald Trump's administration is denying visas to same-sex partners of diplomats and UN officials. This is news from just this week, Dave. They don't care about you, Dave. They're using you. You are a tool of conservatives and by promoting this idea that they're somehow more tolerant than the left who fought to give you the right to marry a man it's just complete and utter horseshit and i know deep down dave rubin knows that this notion about the right being more tolerant than the left is completely bullshit if you actually believed the shit that came out of your mouth, Dave, then why don't you test this theory? Go to some of the most conservative states, go to Alabama, go to Kentucky, walk down the street holding hands, kissing your husband, and ask someone with a MAGA hat how they feel about your marriage. What do you think their response is going to be, Dave? I don't want no queers around here. You better get your queer ass out of here, boy. That's how the fuck that's going to go, Dave. That's the way that the world is. Just because you simply say that the conservative... Movement in this country is more tolerant doesn't make it true. And what I saw here was downright fucking pathetic because Dave Rubin essentially begged for acceptance in some way from Ben Shapiro, and Ben Shapiro couldn't even give Dave the bare minimum. And Dave made another comment um, along the lines of, Oh, well, you know, even though this sounds glib, I don't really care that you think my life is a sin. Oh, ho, ho. Dave. That's fucking dumb. Do you want to know what you say to someone like Ben Shapiro when he denies you the same dignity as everyone else? You tell him to go fuck himself because what he's trying to do is hide behind his religion to justify his homophobia, but that's bullshit. That's complete bullshit because think of the logic Ben Shapiro used. He said, well, you know what? I can't go to your anniversary party or do anything that would somehow glorify your sinful lifestyle, but what? what is ben shapiro doing he's doing propaganda at the behest of a political party republicans who advocate for death and destruction who advocate for war he himself has advocated for war so baking a cake for dave or going to a gay person's anniversary party that'd be a bridge too far for ben shapiro but championing a war that kills hundreds of thousands of iraqis that's not a celebration of sin that doesn't go against one of the ten commandments Thou shalt not kill. I mean, homosexuality isn't even on the Ten Commandments. That's how little his God gives a shit about that. But thou shalt not kill? Well, Ben Shapiro doesn't give a damn about glorifying that type of sin, which is really one of the ultimate sins. Killing. Taking the lives of other human beings. In fact, he advocated once for killing civilians. He said, I don't care if we're killing civilians in Iraq. He literally wrote this as an op-ed in, I believe, Town Hall. So... Glorifying sin is okay if it's a sin that Ben Shapiro agrees with. It doesn't matter, you know, what his religion thinks. He's applying or really superimposing, as Kyle kolinsky would say, his own views on his own religion. So, Dave Rubin, though, he doesn't call Ben Shapiro out for his hypocrisy. He just lets him say what he wants to say. And that is so disgusting. And for someone like Dave Rubin, of all people, to say, you know, I really don't care, even if it sounds glib that you think my life is a sin, think of how harmful that is to LGBT youth who are religious, who hear idiots like Ben Shapiro, who you bring on your show, hear you say that. People who are LGBT and brainwashed with religion when they're young, they genuinely struggle to accept themselves. They do. Imagine how harmful this conversation is to someone who's young, who's 14, and who's realizing that they're gay, hearing that, oh, well, this person thinks that my life is sinful, that I'm a sin, I'm inherently a sinful person, that makes them feel horrible. It's a reason why the suicide rate is so much higher for LGBTQ youth, because of shit like this, because of people like Dave Rubin who are giving these types of bigots like Ben Shapiro a platform. I've had people tell me to my face that my lifestyle is a sin. And not even in, you know, an aggressive way. I've had people say, oh, well, you know, I completely love gay people. You know, all sin is equal. I'm a sinner too. That's still kind of like a backhanded fuck you comment, right? Because you're still saying that the person who I am is inherently sinful, well, go fuck yourself. That's the attitude you have to have. That's how you have to respond to people who are telling you that your entire life is sinful and inherently wrong. You tell them to go fuck themselves, and most importantly, you challenge them if you bring them on your show, Dave. But you shouldn't even be giving these types of scoundrels who are propagandists like Ben Shapiro a platform anyway. But of course, Ben Shapiro, or Dave Rubin rather, He cares more about money than actually helping his own community. He cares more about enriching himself and selling out. Because, you know, according to him, money is more important than principle. Well, it's despicable, and I think you're fucking pathetic, Dave. One gay guy to another. You're a disgrace. So... I've always been a really, really big fan of Kanye West. And no, I'm not a fan of Kanye West in a way that conservatives are suddenly a fan of his work. I mean, I literally bought all of his fucking albums and I continued to buy them long after Reasonable People stopped buying CDs. And I still have them for some reason as well. I mean, like, this is an album that basically shaped my teenage years, and I learned the hard way that when you buy music from Walmart, uh, they edit out all the curse words. So that kind of fucked up the experience for me. But nonetheless, long story short, I'm a big fan of Kanye West, a genuine fan. So with that being said, this gives me no pleasure to say this. Kanye West has lost his goddamn mind. Now, as I say that, I kind of question, uh, did he ever really have it? Because, I mean, he said really nonsensical things before that are just idiotic, but I kind of dismissed them and chalked them up to him trying to be edgy or maybe convey his ideas in a more abstract way. But it's very clear to me that he's not just some misunderstood genius. This is an individual that's just really, really lost. And as someone who previously, again, loved Kanye West's work, It's sad to see this happen. So by now you all know that he recently appeared on SNL and after the show cut and the cameras stopped rolling apparently, he went on this weird pro-Trump rant. He donned the mega hat and was just spewing nonsense. Now, we don't know everything that was said. However, Chris Rock was reportedly in the audience and he was able to capture some of what Kanye said On film and he thankfully put it up on Instagram for all of us to see and the video was kind of choppy so bear with me but we kind of get a sense of what Kanye was talking about and it was just it was so weird
9: you see they laughing at me you heard them scream at me they bully me they bullied me backstage they said don't go out there with that hat on they bullied me backstage They bully me. And then they say, I'm in a sunken place. You want to see the sunken place? Okay, I'm going to listen to y'all now. I'm going to put my Superman cape on. Because this means you can't tell me what to do. Follow your heart and stop following your mind. That's how we're controlled. That's how we're programmed. If you want the world to move forward, try love. Thank y'all for giving me this platform. I know some of y'all don't agree, but y'all be going at that man neck a lot, and I don't think it's actually that helpful. I think the universe has balance. 90% of news are liberal. 90% of TV, LA, New York, writers, rappers, musicians. So it's easy to make it seem like it's so, so, so one-sided. And uh I can come free. I thought this country said I could be me. I love me too. I wanna cry right now. Black man in America. Supposed to keep what you feel inside right now. And the liberals, blacks weren't always never press. You know, it's like a plan they did, uh, to take the fathers out of the home and promote welfare. Does anybody know about that? That's a democratic plan. And so many times I talk to, like, a white person about this and they say, how could you like Trump? He's racist. Well, uh, if I was concerned about racism, I would have moved out of America a long time ago. We don't just make out of silver. And, that is and when I say I'm running 2020, all my smart friends. Oh, now you've got a situation where we need to have a dialogue, and not a diatribe.
1: What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened
0: to it so that was pretty difficult to understand what he was saying but i do have the transcripts um he made up this really weird weird, insane conspiracy theory about Democrats. And I'm obviously not an individual who is inclined to defend Democrats, but here I have no choice. So he said, the blacks want always Democrats. You know, it's like the plan they did to take fathers out the home and put them on welfare. Does anybody know about that? That's a Democrat plan. Kanye, what the fuck are you talking about? All you have to do to dismiss this conspiracy theory is kind of think through it logically for a few seconds. What incentive would Democrats have for this? It's an insane conspiracy theory that makes absolutely no sense. And think about this. He said crazy things before in his music that we all just kind of, you know, explained away and dismissed, like in, what? what's the name of it? I have the CDs here. Oh, this is all fucked up. It's hard to see. Okay, so in the song Heard Him Say with Adam Levine, remember that song? He had this line that was kind of peculiar that he didn't quite explain. And I know the government administered AIDS. So did the government, like, create AIDS in a laboratory? See, (laughs) this is what happens when you allow people to spew bullshit for so long and let them go unchecked. Uh, It gets to a point where, you know, it just kind of boils over and they reach a level of insanity that just is mind-boggling. And, you know, after he appeared on SNL, he also tweeted out an image of him with a MAGA hat. So this is just, it's sad, right? As a Kanye fan, um, it's really sad because... This is an individual who I really respected, and to see him fall, not just because I disagree with him politically, but I mean, he's saying very nonsensical things. He is supporting Trump when he spoke out against Bush. He famously said during his coverage of Hurricane Katrina, or during coverage of Hurricane Katrina rather, that George Bush doesn't care about black people. Kanye, how does Trump care about black people? What is he doing to help black people? Explain that, Kanye. What policies has he he specifically signed into law that help members of marginalized communities? He's doing everything that benefits the rich because he's rich. And maybe you like that, Kanye, because you're rich, but just because you're rich and you like Donald Trump doesn't mean that everyone else is doing okay because the rich is doing really well under Donald Trump. We're all hurting. Normal Americans are hurting Kanye, and you're not talking to them. You're living in your ivory tower with your millions of dollars eating caviar and doing whatever bullshit rich people do, um, smelling their own farts, maybe, and you don't have to deal with the real-world... Consequences that result from the Republican Party's policy. You don't have to deal with that. You don't. You're not seeing the de- devastation and destruction from the wars and the U.S. empire that Trump is expanding and all the people that he's killing in the Middle East and North Africa. But out of sight, out of mind. Ignorance is bliss. If you don't know about that, you could just, you know, cheerlead Donald Trump because I guess he knew Donald Trump beforehand and they were friends. <sighs> It's just sad. You know, Kanye is a really big idiot, and now I can't even enjoy his music, not because I disagree with him politically, uh, but because whatever he's saying, I can't explain away some of the more abstract, vague, and amorphous lyrics by just saying, oh, that Kanye, he's so kooky. No, because this is someone who is very lost, who is not thinking rationally, like a normal human being, and it's it's really sad. You know, it... uh, it's sad i'm gonna keep the cds because those ones are good but i don't know if i could listen to them for a while it's gonna take time you hurt me kanye (laughs) you really hurt me with this fucking bullshit and uh just the, the the constant bombardment of stupidity that his fans have been hit with i mean jesus get it together dude get your shit together
5: Hello, everyone. I'm here with Ron Placone, and you all know him from The Jimmy Dore Show, as well as Get Your News On with Ron. He's a stand-up comedian that tours the country, and today he's going to tell us about municipal broadband. Ron, welcome back
2: to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me back, man. Always good to see you. Always good to spend time with you. And uh, yeah, I kind of, you know, we did a segment on this before where we talked about municipal broadband and we talked about net neutrality. And after we did it, you know I, I told you this off mic but I, but I want everyone to know um, I got a pretty decent amount of emails from uh, humanist report viewers saying we saw this segment you said that you're trying to get it in your community you're doing things to try to get there. Uh, what can we do to get it in ours I mentioned on the last video we did that hey if you want my transcript, would I said it my city hall? I'll send it to you. I told people, if you want to say howdy howdy at the end like I did, please do. I'd be flattered and honored if you did, but you don't have to. Um, and people asked for it, and, and that was really cool. Um, so, so you know, I, I'm hoping a lot of Humanist Report folks really want to hear about this stuff, and uh, so I really wanted to give an update. So um, first thing, on my channel, just youtube.com slash Ron Placombe, where I do get your news on with Ron, uh, I started a playlist. That's just Muni Internet Net Neutrality. That's the name of the playlist. Very, and if you go there, you're going to get pretty much everything I've done. Uh, related to this issue all the news stories i've done related to it covering uh the net neutrality bill here in california
5: yeah and ron uh, let me just say myself um as someone who follows this issue very closely and knowing that my viewers are very engaged with this you've had some fantastic interviews ron has actually had um state senator scott weiner on his show and interviewed him phenomenal content if you are interested in net neutrality so carry on sure. i just had to cut in and give my own two cents because you, you've been killing it lately
2: thank you. I, I appreciate that a lot. And, and yeah, Scott Weiner did the show. And, and, you know, to his credit, he's somebody who I don't agree with on everything. Um, and I, I was a little surprised he was willing to do the show. But we made it very clear uh, to his people, look, we really want to talk about net neutrality. Uh, we want to talk about net neutrality. We want to talk about net neutrality. Um, so he was willing to come on to talk about the bill shortly before uh, crunch time. And, um, yeah, he was, it was a good conversation, uh, around the issues and kind of difficulty that it faces now because, uh, everybody is suing, uh, and by everybody, I mean the, uh, you know, big cable and, uh, the department of justice, they, they wasted no time mike i don't yeah. i don't know i mean i know you were following it in real time too it was uh for anyone not it was on sunday uh which that was the 30th yeah sunday this past sunday was uh september 30th mm-hmm. um and they governor jerry brown here in california signed the net neutrality bill one of the i guess maybe it was among the last things he got to but he signed the bill went into law and an hour later department of justice stewing they didn't even wait mike on a sunday yeah. On the day of our Lord. Come on, man. They They were ready. (laughs) They were ready. And we knew that was going to happen. It's not like that was a surprise, but I was like, man, they couldn't even wait till Monday. They couldn't give us one night of celebration. Come on. Yeah. um, So, so yeah. Anyway, I I made that playlist available. uh, For anyone who thinks that they would benefit from uh, that content, please do check it out. I, I wanted to make it as easily accessible for people as possible. So what I've done since I've last been here um i've been looking into an organization called the institute for local self-reliance uh they have another uh website their their website is just uh ilsr.org and then they have another website connected to that called muninetworks.org, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like it keeps track of all the municipal broadband efforts going on nationwide um one of the people in charge of that effort is a, a gentleman by the name of christopher mitchell he's based in minneapolis minnesota and I had him on the show. Uh, so let's back up a little bit. They were offering this service where if you you had to, your city had to apply. And what you could do is your city could apply. And then they would come to your city and they would do an assessment for municipal broadband. There's different ways to do municipal broadband. One is fiber to the home, where you kind of have dark fiber going into residences, like where I live, where you live, whatever. That's the most costly way to do it. Um, Another way is kind of mass wireless networks via something what's referred to as a mesh network and kind of just having those throughout the city in residential areas. That's another way to do it. Uh, And then another way is kind of just a hybrid model. And what they do is they assess the mileage. They look at what type of budget the city has what, you know, I guess what you can expect from residents because now your internet bill isn't going to be handed over to Comcast. You're going to pay your internet bill to your city the same way you pay for your garbage or whatever else. Um, So they come and they do that assessment for you um, at, a, at a relatively reasonable price. So they were doing this promotion where they were offering a discount. Now, I contacted my city, Pasadena, California. Uh, another thing that kind of thickens the plot here The woman uh, whose first name is Lori, who's in charge of uh, those decisions, she's like a telecom type director in the city. I'm not, off the top of my head, I don't don't know her official title, but that's essentially what she does. Um, She has been on Chris Mitchell's, the guy who's in charge of the Institute of Local Self-Reliance. She's been on his podcast talking about all the potential Pasadena has for municipal broadband. So I'm thinking, Mike, that I just, I'm matchmaker Magoo over yeah. here. I'm going to reach out to Lori. <laughs> Lori's going to be like, no shit, Chris is doing that. That's awesome. Pasadena, the application's in the mail. Thank you, Ron. Because it doesn't cost anything to apply. It doesn't cost a dime. If you get approved, then, you know, there's a fee involved there for their time and it's by mileage. But it costs nothing to apply. I'm like, yeah, what a man, I'm, I'm making connections. So I email her and I'm all excited. And she just emails me back and she's like, no, nope, no, thanks. And I was just like, what? you were on the podcast talking about, I just listened to a podcast where you're talking about, we have so much potential and maybe someday we'll look into residential. And then you're just like, nope, nope, not doing it. And I'm like, why? Why? No reasoning whatsoever. You got no, nothing. No, I, I mean, and I didn't follow up. I, I didn't ask because the deadline was, I mean, it was pretty close to the deadline at this point, but I didn't know why. And I brought that up in our interview. I'm like, Chris, I have no idea why she said no. I'm, I'm not trying to come down on her one way or another because I don't understand, you know, I don't know all the details of her position, like her position as in why she said no. Um, and he said, Look, man, typically what we see and in, in our experience is that you need to convince people. Uh, that and by people meaning city officials that this belongs on a ballot that people care because they're, they're not just going to throw money into something if they don't think anyone cares or anyone's interested so you know it's your job to make it clear to them that this people care people want this and that that's fair that that's you know a fair assessment in local government i can take that um so I and I said to him, I was like, "Look, Chris, that sounds well and dandy, but uh, I, I think I'm going to need more than two days to accomplish that tax, task. I think I need a little bit of time." And he said, "Look, we're we're accepting applications indefinitely. Like like we're accepting them. So even though this promotion was a short lived thing that ended on September 29th, they are always accepting applications. So." To the people that have reached out to me, to the people that have shown up at their city halls or are still uh, about to go to their city halls and haven't gone yet, um, this is kind of the next step. Bring up this organization. Tell people, hey, we can get an assessment done that's going to figure out, it's not going to cost a lot of money, and we're going to figure out what exactly, um, our, how exactly our needs can be met for municipal broadband in our community there is an organization that goes around the country doing this for communities and what's um, the
5: website one more time ron that
2: website is ilsr.org the institute for local self-reliance and uh the neighboring website is muni uh the gentleman who is a a big purveyor of all that is christopher mitchell uh i know he's not working alone so i, I don't want to you know there's other people involved with that organization as well they're all doing amazing work i don't want to discredit them but christopher is uh is kind of the uh, figurehead, and, and he's the one that does the media appearances and appeared on my show. Uh, so that's kind of the next step, and, and you can wait and see how their first assessments worked out because, you know, one of the things he pointed out to me, and again, you can see our entire interview on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Ron Placone, you know, ever since net neutrality was repealed at the federal level, he's seen a big, massive spike in interest. Uh, Which is huge and needs to continue because that's the only way we're permanently going to solve this thing. I was thrilled when our our state bill passed here in California. It's a good bill. It's an important bill. And it doesn't just help California. It helps the rest of the country because the Comcast and AT&T's in the world, they just want to profit off the Internet as much as they can. So if a huge customer base like California and New York, if they can't unroll these packages that fuck the consumers over by charging you more for a certain website or throttling certain content, if they can't do that nationwide, well, all of a sudden you've stripped their profit incentive out. So, you know, it's good when state net neutrality bills happen.
5: And now we have net neutrality on the entire West Coast. Washington, Oregon, California. Uh, Now that you're here, though, I do want to pick your brain because something you said um, that Mitchell told you was that the way to kind of get public officials in your city interested in this is to demonstrate to them that the people are interested. So what can you do to convey to them that there is interest and a desire for municipal broadband. I mean, do you knock on doors and collect signatures? What do you think can be done? Because you're in this process currently. Yeah. What would be your advice there? How do we show them that we want this?
2: Well, um, I think there are a number of ways to do that. Certainly what you brought up, just going door to door and knocking on doors, that's one. Uh, My personal opinion would be, wait until you've gone a little further. Don't start there. Because, you know, you might face a situation where you have to really fight to get it on a ballot, and that's when you got to start knocking on doors. Or you might have a supportive city council and mayor that says, yeah, this is really important. We want to help you sell this to the public, in which case you might not need to knock on doors, but you might be more involved uh, on getting it on a ballot and on kind of being a communication vessel between local government and other citizens. Um I would say out the gate to just kind of bring it to your city's attention would be to show up to a city hall with as much behind you as possible. Uh, You know, what I did is uh, we announced it on the Jimmy (laughs) Dore show. So we showed up with a lot of people. Jimmy showed up too. um, And we we just had as many people who were willing to go up there, speak about municipal broadband, our local government was like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> so, <laughs> so they put it on a city agenda, which is a slow process. It took a couple months before they finally gave a hearing on the agenda. We went to the hearing and, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll just cover this briefly because we did talk about this more in depthly last time. But at the hearing that we had in my community in Pasadena, California, they said, uh, we can't do this because we can't afford it. But all they did was they looked at what Beverly Hills was doing. Beverly Hills, California is doing fiber to the home because it's Beverly Hills. Right. They can afford it. It's where Absolutely. all the movie stars live. So they're doing fiber to the home. They took what Beverly Hills is doing. They applied it to the mileage of Pasadena and was like, we can't afford this. Which, you know, I was like, look, uh, there were, there's more than one way to look into this. You kind of looked at one case study and decided we couldn't afford it. Uh, I don't think that's right. I think we got to continue this conversation. And I responded and I said that, you know, in in a very diplomatic way, because, you know, I appreciated the fact that they put it on an agenda, but I was disappointed with the results. And honestly, I've been a little disappointed that I've had such little support from my local government. Now, that being said, there are a few city council people who uh, are into the cause. So, you know, and we're hoping that maybe we can get a couple more elected, but um, so I would encourage people to bring it to a different organization. I I know one guy um, that lives in Indiana and, and watches get your news on with Ron and the humanist report. What he did was he brought it to his local DSA chapter. That's a great idea. Yeah. And, and he said, look, I'm, I'm a, you know, I I support the DSA and um, I'm a member And um, this is something that I feel should be part of our agenda here. And this is something we can do locally. You know, the DSA, they do have causes. They're not just trying to help people get elected. They also have causes. You know, I mean, they're on board with abolishing ICE and there's other causes they've taken on. So
5: Mm -hmm. and and one thing that I want to say, because when you said that, you all showed up kind of like with a little army and Jimmy Dore came and people were testifying one after another. One thing that you can also do is really utilize social media to your advantage. I mean, you can create events on Facebook and try to get people that way. On There's going to be a Facebook page for every single community, essentially, so you can put that information there to see who would be interested. And I think that it would take a little bit longer, right? Because if someone like, Ron Placone just says on the Jimmy Dore show, hey, we're all going to show up here. That's easy for us, right? But for you, it will take a little bit longer, obviously, because not everybody has a platform. But there are resources for individuals. And bringing up the DSA, I think that's a fantastic idea. And not even the DSA. You can even speak with um, local conservative organizations if there are any, because um, at the local level, you're not going to see politicians bought off to the extent that you will find in Congress. So we might just think, well, uh, the standard prototypical Republican is going to be against net neutrality. But at the local level, that might not necessarily be the case. So I wouldn't even, you know, kind of dismiss local Republican organizations or conservative organizations as a lost cause because we have to remember net neutrality is not a partisan issue. This has overwhelming support among everyone, 73% of Republicans as well. So there are there are people who are interested in this. And I think, to, you know, just you and I talking about it, as was demonstrated last time, it really proved that people care. Like, there's a hunger for this.
2: Yeah, and 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 honestly, you're not limited, and, and I know you, you kind of hinted this, but you're not limited to one organization either. I mean, you can go to as many as you want, and, and I exactly. would encourage everything from the left to the right to everything in between, just go, bring this up, and say, I'm trying to start a coalition dedicated to this cause. Um, You know, I spoke at the local Democratic chapter uh, here in Pasadena, which uh, was mostly was actually mostly DSA members because it's like, you know, this is Southern California. So it's mostly people dem entering, trying to hijack the establishment. Right. So it was mostly people I already knew, but I still spoke there. Um, and I, I've spoken at uh, to the DSA directly. And then, of course, yeah, of course, ha- having the platforms like, like Jimmy Dore show and stuff like that, that that does help a lot, too. Um, and then what I did, after I spoke to those organizations, I started a task force via Facebook. We have a Facebook group, and it's the, the Southern California Task Force for Municipal Internet. And we share resources there. We share ideas, and we, we try to get a game plan going. And um, you know, my next steps and in, in my task is to show back up at a city council, uh, bring up what the Institute of Local Self-Reliance is doing, And, you know, seeing if I can get a little more interest and then, you know, kind of forming a a coalition around it. You know, everything from people being active about this issue to people um, trying to get other folks involved from the Institute of Local Self-Reliance to people hopefully running for office. You know, when you look Mm -hmm. at what Gail McLaughlin did in Richmond, California, Um, if that was done in 50% of all the communities in this country, not even all of them, just 50%, we'd be having an entirely different conversation in this country. Explain Um, what
5: she did for those of us who don't know. Yeah, 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 totally.
2: So what Gail McLaughlin did is she, uh, Chevron came to her town in Richmond, Virginia. They wanted to drill there and do other things there. And uh, she's involved with local, she was involved with local politics. Still is. And she decided this is not going to happen. So she started a coalition of activists, of um, content creators, and of people running for office. Um, All the above. And they formed a powerful coalition and pretty much um, took over local government, more or less, and told Chevron to get the hell out of town. And they won.
5: That's amazing. Uh,
2: and it's because she did something at the grassroots level, and it's because she did something locally. And and I think, you know, Mike, you and I talk about this stuff, and, and the electoral politics has become increasingly more frustrating. Yeah. Uh, we, we both know that. Uh, but acting locally and having cause-based movements and having, um, you know, those types of efforts – uh, even just looking at what Bernie Sanders is doing, getting behind the workers at Amazon, getting behind the workers at Disney, of course, there's there's other complications there going on, but you know, still, right? The movements are 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 still being they're effective. Same with all the strikes going on in Chicago and and Detroit and Minneapolis. Um, this is kind of the types of actions that we need, and you know, for me. Municipal internet is just an issue very near and dear to my heart because as a content creator, it affects me a whole hell of a lot. And the change that we're talking about, change through activism and action, if we don't have a good communication vessel, i.e. a free and open internet, uh, we're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And (laughs) not just the content now. Yeah, everyone would be screwed in that situation. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I said, my task force, we use Facebook for it. Yeah, um, that's just the world we live in. I know the first time, you know, post Great Depression, they didn't have the Internet and labor still had a strong movement. But you know, the technology's here now. It's not going away. So
5: right. we have to use it to our advantage. And I think you made such a great point. Um, because it's it is so easy when you view electoral politics nationally, you just feel so powerless. You feel like no matter what you do, you just can't affect change. But at the local level, We do have power, and that's one thing that I think people are starting to find out as they do get more involved, as they reach out to the local DSA chapter. You have power at the local level, and Ron's situation in Pasadena, it might not be your situation in your city. Maybe you might propose it to city council, and you have a lot easier time getting it passed. You might have a more difficult time than Ron. Everyone's story is going to be different, but the point is that it's not very difficult the barrier to entry is is fairly low, would you say, Ron, just for getting started?
2: Show. Sure. I mean, even if you are all alone showing up at a city hall, that's something, you know? Right. I mean, I would say try to get a group and try to have everyone speak about it because then you're going to get it on an agenda. But, um, you know, maybe you're just flying solo. That's okay because there might be some other people at that meeting that hear about it and they're like, oh, shit. That might-. There might be someone in the local media. That hears about it and they're like, "Wow, why aren't we talking about this? This is a way to solve net neutrality permanently. I want to write an article about this." You know, you never know who's going to be around, and right. you never know which members of which groups um, might have some say, uh, or might have some valuable information or tools. You might. You might randomly meet somebody that says, man, I actually was involved in an effort in Tacoma, Washington in the in the late 90s. Like, like who knows? And I, I say that because Tacoma, Washington has actually had uh, a municipal broadband effort since 1996, which I actually didn't learn until recently. Hmm. Yeah.
5: Yeah, I didn't know about that either. We're seeing um, a lot uh, or learning a lot really about all of these different. Movements across the country. Uh, yeah. Now, I want to get your take on this. So, let's say that you're an individual who you work two jobs, you don't have time to show up to city council. I know that obviously showing up would be a lot more effective, but if you can just do the most minimum thing, such as like emailing a member of city council, even that could potentially
2: get the ball rolling in some way, right? Absolutely. I mean, you could send an email. Another thing, if you're looking for something like real quick to send, um, to just kind of get this issue like on the radar locally, uh, Free Press, the organization Free Press, which I, I believe freepress.net is their website. They have a mayor's petition for net neutrality, mm-hmm. vo- which basically you vow to protect net neutrality in your community. And you're going to do everything you can because it's a value your community holds. Send that to your mayor. Be like, hey, will you sign this? Will you will you loan your petition or your signature to this? Excuse me. Uh, this is a really important issue. Maybe they'll respond. They'll be like, well, how can we really save this issue? Be like, well, we could build municipal broadband in the community. We could do that. You want to do that? You know, you never know. So, yeah, I mean, there's even if it's just uh, sending an email, like, and that's still a big thing.
5: Yeah, to get the ball rolling, at least. And understand that we kind of have this biased view of politicians in our own heads of them not really being willing to listen not being receptive to our ideas but at the local level like they're not going to be as bought off as politicians you know in congress so if you explain to a member of city council um why he or she would benefit from municipal broadband then their odds are they're going to be more receptive to it if you can personalize the story and explain to them how it's important not just to you but to them as well because these aren't shills you know for verizon uh, and very well it may be the case that in the event you really do get a lot of momentum that isp lobbyists step in and try to stop this initiative in your city but nonetheless they're going to be more receptive at the local level and you're going to see that you actually you do have a voice if you just you you give it a chance and get the ball rolling so ron any last advice before we go about someone who is kind of on the fence, maybe thinking about getting involved and fighting for municipal broadband in, in their community, but they just, they don't fully feel like jumping in yet. What would you tell that individual?
2: Jump in. Now is the time to do what Joe Strummer trained us for. Jump the fuck in, man. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> and just I mean, man is it. uh, jump, uh, you know, gender neutral, man. I, I didn't, you know, but, uh, But yeah, and one last thing based on what you were saying where um, it's really easy to kind of of speak the language of the city official if you have to because it is – not only does it preserve the free and open internet and it like preserves digital rights, but the other side of it is it really is a great investment for any city. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, look at Chattanooga, Tennessee. They have the best internet in the country at a reasonable price. And their city has flourished because of it. And now they're screaming it from the rooftop. It used to just be a fun fact about Chattanooga. Now that net neutrality is really front and center, they have banners all over. They have billboards <laughs> everywhere. You drive. I drove through the town not too long ago on my way to Atlanta when I was uh, on the progressive comedy tour in the South. And it was just there. Like, we are Gig City USA. Um, and now That's other great. cities in Tennessee, which, you know, Tennessee, a, a relatively conservative state, other cities in Tennessee, they all want municipal broadband cuz they saw what it did for Chattanooga. So, there's that domino yeah, effect. It, yeah, there's it's a good investment. And that's why I know we're going to have a hard fight here in Southern California because once communities start getting it, it's really going to spread. Mm-hmm. So, you right. Know?
5: And There's a great article in The Atlantic. I can't remember the author currently, but it talks about just how well Chattanooga is doing. If you were to print that out and put it in the hands, the physical article of a local elected official, that would have potentially a big impact they'd read it because i mean you could send them the links all you want but odds are they're getting 100 per day if you actually kind of take that extra step print it out and put it in their hands and talk to them you know and explain to them investment works look at this article right here that explains how well it's working for chattanooga you know that could have an impact so just little tiny things that you can do to really make a difference and have maybe a little bit more of an impact um so ron thank you so much for coming on anything else you wanted to add before we go
2: no, man. I mean, just, uh, yeah, again, if, if I can just say, uh, ronplacone.com is my website, uh, and I, I got a lot of tour dates coming up. So uh, I'm going to be uh, – we just confirmed a tour in Florida in January. So if there's any Florida awesome. viewers, we're coming at you. Southern California – or excuse me, Northern California, I'll see you in November. Uh, Austin, Texas, I'll see you in November. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I'll see you in November. Uh, and ronplacone.com for all my tour dates. And again, uh, if you're interested in that playlist, on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash um, you can go to that playlist, see all of the resources more in depth of what we just talked about here. It's just a Muni network net neutrality playlist, and it's on my YouTube channel. And of course, Get Your News On With Ron goes on every Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern. And uh, you can catch me over on the Jimmy Dore show once Jimmy gets back from Italy. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ron. It's been extremely helpful. This is what
5: really I think we need right now because a lot of people are feeling discouraged, especially with the lawsuit from the Justice Department. But take action. You have power. You know, you're not powerless in this situation and you really can make a difference and potentially get the ball rolling for other cities across the country as well.
0: Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Special thanks to my guest, Ron Placone. I want to thank you all if you've made it this far in the episode. And as usual, before I leave, I can't not thank all of our PayPal members and Patreon contributors who helped the show to survive and also thrive because we couldn't do this without you. So thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the program, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. I'm Mike Figueredo. I'll see you all next week. Take care.